From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. I want to remind you that you can find this in every program at TonyPerkins.com. Today on the show, a case out of Maryland is good news for religious freedom and bad news for governments that are trying to punish churches and schools for their religious beliefs. We'll talk about that later in the program as well. Are school districts trying to screen out conservatives during the interview process? Questions uncovered by a new report suggest the answer to that question may be yes. We'll talk about that as well. But first, the headline. We are now on day three of responding to the worst tornado event in the history of our Commonwealth. Our state was hit by at least four tornadoes. One stayed on the ground in Kentucky for at least 200 miles, devastating anything in its path. That was Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear at a press conference earlier this morning, giving an update on the situation in his state after a series of tornadoes tore through Kentucky and several other states in the Midwest and South over the weekend. Joining me now to give us his assessment of the situation is Kentucky Congressman James Comu, who represents the first congressional district in the Bluegrass State, which was the region hit hardest by the tornadoes. Representative Comer, welcome back to the program. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I know that the, your district specifically was one of the hardest hit areas in the state, which was one of the hit, hardest hit states in the region. Uh, we've seen a lot of footage. What are you seeing on the ground? You know, the footage doesn't do it justice. Uh, until you see the devastation up close and personal, it's hard to comprehend. Uh, this is the third day. I'm, I'm in my Paducah office now. We've been trying to work the phone lines to help with people, getting them connected with FEMA. But I'm uh, momentarily going to head back down to, to Mayfield. It's just uh, devastation like we've never seen. Uh, the The shock has worn off, and now people are trying to figure out how to how to clean up and how to uh, rebuild and get their lives back to normal. But uh, unfortunately, it's going to be a long, hard process. Have you ever seen anything like this before? I have not. We have tornadoes come through Kentucky. We, we have tornadoes that, that travel 100 miles at a time. But the difference in this tornado and every other tornado in my lifetime is the width of this tornado. If you'll remember, you always see stories of a tornado going through and hitting one side of the street, but then, uh, but then the other side's left unharmed. So the, the, that path would be a very narrow path. But what we have in, in Mayfield and, and Dawson Springs and all these communities is the width of the tornado was as, as wide as three and a half miles. So it's taken out blocks and blocks and blocks, uh, miles of, of radius around these populated uh, cities, and it's just unbelievable, the, the damage. I mean, you've never seen anything like it. What is the status of the recovery situation right now? Well, we're still hopeful, obviously, that there are some people that uh, are unaccounted for that uh, we can we can find. Uh, right now, there are nearly 100 people still unaccounted for in my congressional district. 
the cadaver dogs are going through uh, any property that uh, they haven't already gone through. And remember, there are over 1,200 homes that have been destroyed, completely destroyed in my congressional district. 1,200 scattered uh, over, a, a, you know, probably a, 150 miles of, uh, of property. So, you know, it takes a long time to go over. We, we've flown drones over to try to identify homes in rural areas uh, that, uh, you know, didn't receive the attention within the first 24 hours. But we've got those dogs out and, and just trying to find any hope of, of life. Uh, so, you know, the, the sad part is when the tornado hit, it was in the low 60s temperature-wise. Last night, it got down to about 22 degrees. So uh, the last two nights, the, the temperature has been very, very cold. So, you know, there, it's, uh, there's still a chance or still a hope. Uh, the whole world's praying for uh, the families and the victims in this tornado, and we, we can't give up hope. But, you know, the clock's ticking, and every, every second counts now. And you mentioned the number of houses that have been displaced. There are power issues that we're hearing reports of people not having water for those whose houses were not destroyed. How are those who may not have lost their house or even those who did, how are people being sheltered now? That's it's tough. You know, we're relying on neighbors. Uh, the there are shelters set up. There are Red Cross shelters. Every uh, church that's left standing is, has offered shelter. So the the people temporarily ha- have been taken care of. The problem is, as you mentioned, water is out uh, all over these counties, even in areas that weren't affected by the tornado. Power is out in entire counties, uh, all up and down my congressional district. Uh, tens of thousands of people are still without. Power and again, it's in the 20s at night, and we have a lot of elderly population here. So the the hospitals are all operating on generators, which is never good, never safe. So it's a, a lot of challenges. The sewer system is completely destroyed in Mayfield, beyond repair. Two water tanks were taken out. Three cell phone towers were taken out. Uh, it's just devastation, like we've never seen. A post office was completely destroyed. A lot of people who depend on getting their uh, medicine in the mail. Uh, the mail has been disrupted. So uh, we're trying to get the, the mail rerouted from Mayfield to Paducah. It's just, uh, it's a big challenge, series of challenges. Uh, but the people are resilient down here. Uh, very faithful population down here. Everyone's uh, praying and, and hoping for the best. How wide or how big is that area? We've seen individual towns that have been destroyed, and that footage is terrifying if we think about that in our own homes. But how how big is the overall affected area? How many towns have been affected? I would say in my congressional district, there are 15 or 16 uh, towns and communities that uh, have had extensive damage. Now, remember that line went up through uh, – Every little community in Kentucky, with the difference in another difference in this tornado and others is that tornadoes are narrow and they they go through mostly rural farmland or, or woods or things like that. These the path of this tornado just happened to go straight through about ten pretty good sized towns in western Kentucky, and they just it completely took out 
the businesses, the downtown areas, uh, whole subdivisions, residential areas. It's just unbelievable. I mean, you cannot imagine what Mayfield looked like before compared to what it looks like now. And the, the people in Mayfield had spent a lot of money uh, reinvigorating their downtown, reinvesting in the downtown. They had just gotten all their Christmas decorations up. Uh, it looked uh, like a, a town in a Hallmark movie uh, on Christmas, but uh, now it looks like a war zone. It looks like somewhere in Afghanistan or somewhere that had just been bombed. It, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. I'm talking to Representative James Comer from Kentucky, who is uh, it represents the first district there, one of the most hardest hit areas in the state of Kentucky and in the country from the tornadoes over the weekend. Representative Comer, I know your office is fielding a lot of calls. You are trying to be helpful. You're doing what you can. What are you hearing from the communities, from the people who are affected? How are they responding? How is this affecting them? Well, we're getting more calls from people around the state and around the nation that want to help, that are saying, we want to donate food, we want to donate supplies, can you connect us with this person or that person, which is really, really inspiring. But we're also having calls from uh, a lot of the mayors and and county executives saying that uh, we've got to get power back on. When are we going to get power back on? We've been communicating with TVA and the different electric utilities. And unfortunately, it may be 20 days in certain parts of Kentucky before they get power back, which we're talking about in, in, in the winter, during Christmas. So it's a, it's a challenge. And then, you know, trying to get the water back on. So we're trying to help navigate the bureaucracy here. We're connecting people with FEMA. Uh, we're connecting uh, the dots to try to help people who want to donate with uh, emergency management teams that need donations. So it's just a, a lot of phone calls in our uh, district offices in Paducah and Tompkinsville. This program is heard in the areas most affected by by the tornadoes. What would, what's your message to them when they're calling you, if they happen to be listening right now? What are people who need help, who have been affected? What can they be doing? What should they be doing right now in order to try to find some assistance? Well, the, the local sheriff, the local mayor, the, the local county executives, they've all been given uh, contact information for FEMA. FEMA is going to be setting up shop in all of these communities. They're there now, but they're going to have a permanent uh, structure uh, in those communities where we're trying to work on temporary housing right now. People are staying with their relatives and neighbors and, uh, you know, but that, that can't last forever. We've got to get temporary housing in. So the, uh, you know, the, this is going to be a very long process. This isn't, isn't something that's going to be over with in a, a few days. You know, when all the national TV media leaves my district, uh, you know, the work hasn't even started to begin yet to, towards recovery. But right now, the most immediate need is obviously trying to rescue anyone who's still under the, the rump rubble. And then the next, a priority, of course, is, is getting the utilities turned back on. We need power. We need cell service to communicate. Uh, we need, obviously, running water. So that's where the big challenges are. And, you know, you can drive down the road and you're going to see utility trucks from about six states that have been rolling into Kentucky over the last three days to help. And these crews are going 24-7. They're going through the night. And like I said, it got down in the very low 20s last night in the temperature. So nobody stopped. Neighbors are, 
Now, this is farm country down here. Everybody has a chainsaw, and they're out uh, cutting trees off roofs and trying to uh, dislodge vehicles. I mean, everybody's helping everybody down here. And, you know, that's the, the one bright spot in a, a terrible, terrible tragedy like this is you see uh, the difference in rural America and many parts of America where people come out and roll their sleeves up and friends help friends and neighbors help neighbors. Yeah. That is the good part of this. We also, however, have heard reports that that in some cases people are being asked to stay away from the towns so that emergency workers can get in and get relief for those who are just who, who are nearby and may feel like they're in a position to help. Uh, what are you encouraging them to do? Yeah, play, if you want to help, call the the local mayors and try to let them assign you a place to be and a, and a job to do. Uh, a big problem, honestly, is people are, are driving through Mayfield just wanting to take pictures with their with their cameras, and uh, you know, and, and I guess see all the local media. It's not never do you see a very a, a satellite truck in any of these small towns, and you've got uh, every major network in America is set up shop there. And I think people are, are curious, and they're driving by, and it's really makes it harder for the utility trucks to get in it delays that and, and we really can't afford any delays so if people want to help call the local the local mayors they're all set up they have their phone lines open if if uh if they want to see it up close and personal please just watch tv because it, it, you're in the way and you're it, you would be making things harder for the people who are, are working and trying to save lives Congressman James Comer, our thoughts and prayers with you and everyone in your district and the state of Kentucky does affect it. Thank you so much for your time. Godspeed in your recovery efforts. Thank you for covering this. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with Samaritan's Purse. They are on the ground helping as well. We're going to find out what the path forward looks like for them. We'll be back. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. 
to get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications. Sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. So glad that you are with us here on Washington Watch. According to the National Weather Service's Storm Prediction Center, at least 50 tornadoes were reported across eight states over the weekend, with Kentucky being the hardest hit. In the last segment, we heard from Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, who gave us an update on the situation in his state. The tornado system in Kentucky has been described as the deadliest ever to run through the state, and Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear said it may be weeks before there are final reports on the number of deaths and the level of destruction. In the meantime, relief and recovery operations are underway. Here to give us a report is Luther Harrison, Vice President of North American Ministries for Samaritan's Purse. Luther, welcome back to the program. Joseph, thank you for having us on your program. Uh, You guys are phenomenal in getting the word out to the public. Uh, There's a lot of help needed right now during this time. Well, we do want to help in any way that we can. You and Samaritan's Purse have been part of a lot of relief efforts. You're part of disasters all over the globe. Tell me, how does this compare to other relief, other disaster situations? Joseph, as I've done this for over 25 years, it's hard to... uh, I guess, categorize a a storm that that family is going through. It may not be the Hurricane Katrina or Andrew or Harvey, but this tornado has caused a lot of death and destruction to families along Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois. And we're here to uh, just go alongside of the local churches and come alongside these families that are hurting to show them that God loves them. He's not forgotten them. Uh, we're going to have chaplains there from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association just trying to help these people, not only physically, but most importantly, spiritually and emotionally. That's a great point, and you work with churches. What response in even the first few days after these events have you seen from the churches in the area? Well, one of our uh, church partners uh, in Mayfield uh, has done Operation Christmas Child with us for years. They just sent their boxes to us a couple of weeks ago, and now they're, uh, the Methodist church there is completely destroyed. But other churches that did not get destroyed, they've opened their doors, allowing us to come alongside of them and let our volunteers sleep in the building and go out during the day to minister to people. So we had staff on the ground on Saturday in Arkansas and Kentucky, and today we just identified a third location to help from Bowling Green. So 
Um, a lot of opportunities, uh, especially here at Christmas time, Joseph. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of families have lost everything, so let's come alongside of them, help them recover the precious things that cannot be replaced through an insurance settlement check, but uh, dog tags, photo albums, things that just uh, are special to these families. And then tarp the roof, keep it from getting more water if it's able to be tarped, or clean up trees that have fallen in the yard. So it's just rolling up our sleeves and people. The machine that makes this ministry work are volunteers that come from all walks of life and come together, and it's just they organize and go out and minister to these families. And tell us a bit more about that, because I know people all over America are watching the situation, imagining this happening to themselves, sharing the grief that this causes. What can they be doing from their homes to be helpful to these people? The first thing they can do is pray. Pray that the Lord would just comfort these families, draw them closer to him during this time, especially at Christmas, where we as Christians celebrate the birth of our Savior. Uh, No better time if they have the availability to sign up, to volunteer, to come alongside and uh, help these families. And you'll meet a stranger, but as you leave, it'll be a, a best friend for you for life. Because we've seen families that have been helped through the years, and a lot of our volunteers come have already been through a hurricane or a fire or flood or tornado. And they can offer assurance that, hey, we've been there in your shoes. We've done that. And there is hope. We have hope. You can recover. You can get back on your feet. And we're here to support you, to show you you're not in this alone. And tell us more about that volunteer need. Are people able to volunteer now? And how long will that need be? Well, this is, uh, I think, going to take a while because of the, as we talked about storms we've had in the past, if it's in a large city, you still have a lot of infrastructure that can take place. But like in Mayfield, you've lost the residents, the churches, the schools, the buildings, the businesses. Uh, when you have the whole infrastructure taken away, that's a big void. That's a big loss. But we need people that are willing to come and help. Uh, there will also be a phase after the cleanup that people that are standing there saying, well, I don't have insurance money. The FEMA check or small business administration uh, loan is not an option for me at 83 as a widow or whatever. We want to come alongside and we'll have uh, teams that will come back and help repair and get families back into their homes. So that takes some time. Now, when you evaluate the scope of this, you've had experience with similar situations How long does the recovery process for an event of this magnitude take? I would say we're looking at years. After Hurricane Harvey, we are still there helping families, and that's uh, from 2017. Remember, Hurricane Andrew is over 10 years. So a lot of times the media will move on to other issues, but um, these communities are still hurting. So we need uh, to get volunteers out that can help these families and uh, this is uh, one of the most uh, freak tornadoes I've seen this late in the year with that much power and magnitude of an EF5 to run over a 200-mile trail, three-quarters of a mile wide. So this is uh, just showing us this, this was a, a very dangerous storm, and um, we're just thankful there was not more loss of life. But just our heart goes out, and we want to pray for these families that are now having to go through uh, the funeral process with their loved ones and others that are still clinging to hope that their uh, loved one that's missing will be found alive. Luther, is there a way for people to volunteer through Samaritan's Purse? Is there some kind of infrastructure that people should work through instead of just showing up and, and trying to do what they can? How can people partner with your effort to, to bring hope to this situation? 
well, you can go to our website, SamaritansFirst.org. And what we want to do is uh, we will have uh, a little form you fill out. You will come. We'll have a place for you to sleep. We bring our shower trailers, our kitchen trailers. So we'll provide your meals and everything is furnished so that you can focus fully on the attention of the homeowners. We have the tools and equipment and the leaders of uh, our teams that will take you out and help you uh, have a safe day of working around these families and these homes that some of the issues are dangerous and we want to make sure we're not pushing a volunteer past their comfort zone. Luther Harrison, we really appreciate you, your effort, and everyone at Samaritan's Purse and all that you do to help those in the greatest need. God bless you and all your efforts. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joseph. God bless you and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Now, we will come back after the break. There is, fortunately, some good news. We'll turn to good news out of Maryland, where a church-run grade school received a favorable ruling from a federal district court on Friday. We'll give you all the details and why it's good news for religious freedom when we come back right after the break here on Washington Watch. Stay with us. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. That's not roasting on an open fire. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name Jack is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. Now imagine this. You are a parent with a child in a private Christian pre-K through 8th grade school. And just weeks before a new school year is set to begin you are informed that your child will no longer be able to benefit from a state voucher program that helps pay tuition for economically disadvantaged families like yours. 
what are you going to do? Send your child to the failing local school down the street? Well, that was the dilemma faced by several Baltimore area families when the state of Maryland yanked eligibility for a voucher program from Bethel Christian Academy just weeks before the 2018 school year. Joining me now to highlight this case and some good news about it is Alliance Defending Freedom Legal Counsel Paul Schmidt. And Paul has been the main attorney handling this case. Paul, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you tell us about the case, how it came to be. Well, as you said, Maryland has this scholarship program, and the program is called BOOST. And BOOST is really designed to help low-income families or families from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. And for two years, uh, when Governor Hogan and the General Assembly founded the program, until about 2018, uh, Bethel Christian Academy, which is in Savage, Maryland, participated in this program without any issue. And then something really unfortunate happened. Um, a political activist who was opposed to the creation of the Boost program complained to the state about the religious beliefs of a different Christian school. And so the state launched what effectively was an inquisition and started reviewing all the internal documents and handbooks of all the participating schools. And any school that had religious views that the state didn't like, specifically about marriage and human sexuality, uh, all those schools got questioned by state attorneys. Uh, and then ultimately some schools like Bethel got kicked out of the program because they refused to change the language in their handbook to a message that the government approved of. Did this state, as you call it, inquisition, did it eliminate all religious schools or just religious schools with particular religious beliefs that they didn't like? Yeah, it, it's funny. It only eliminated religious schools that expressed their biblical beliefs about marriage and human sexuality. Other religious schools were allowed to participate in the program. Effectively, what the government was saying was you can have your religious beliefs, but you just can't express them. Well, this actually sounds very familiar to some oral arguments we heard at the Supreme Court last week in the Carson v. Mencken case out of Maine. Are these similar legal issues? Yeah, they're, they're kind of overlapping uh, legal issues. So what was going on in Carson versus Macon, and we have similar litigation in Vermont going on right now. These states um, have towns that are so small that they don't have public schools. And so the states basically give families tuition to take and use at any school that they want uh, or that is the best fit for their child. And so what the Supreme Court was deciding last week or what the argument was about was whether the state can limit the use of that tuition uh, in a way that those families cannot choose religious schools. What happened in Maryland and what's going on will be the next step uh, in, in all these issues, and we're starting to see this happen all over the country. The question is, okay, you can take your tuition and you can go to a religious school, but if the religious school takes that tuition, do, do they still get to have their beliefs? Do they still get to operate according to their religious principles? Or can the state say, okay, if you're going to take this tuition, then you have to operate effectively like a public school. You have to have the government's beliefs and values. Uh, 
And so that's really how the two issues are related. The Carson versus Macon case is very important. And uh, it appears that the Supreme Court is really going to help families uh, have more access to religious schools and choices that will be good for their kids. Now, you got a good, a favorable ruling from the court last Friday. What did the court say when when defending the religious freedom of the school? Yeah, the court said that Maryland violated the Constitution when it kicked Bethel out of the program because it had written its religious beliefs about marriage and human sexuality down in its handbook. The court made it clear that Maryland can't kick schools out of its programs just because these schools express religious beliefs that the state disagrees with. And I got to tell you, it's really a significant win because the state had tried to penalize Bethel with a $102,000 clawback of previously spent funds. So that means that Bethel, which is, you know, a tiny Christian school, you know, it's on basically a shoestring budget. It would have been responsible for two years worth of tuition for all those kids that participated in the program. So the court blocked that. The court said Maryland can't pursue that money. And so that's a huge relief to that community. It's great news for that school and it's good news for the families at Bethel. And the other part that's great about it is there's nothing holding Bethel back from getting back into the program now. Paul, we do in about 30 seconds. Are other jurisdictions going to learn this lesson finally and stop harassing religious institutions? I hope so. Um, If certainly looking at the landscape, I see a lot more conflict ahead of us. But I hope that other governments, whether they're local or state, will take heed of what these court decisions are saying and just treat religious schools with fairness and respect. Paul Schmidt, Alliance Defending Freedom, thanks so much for your efforts and your time. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, are public schools trying to screen out conservatives from their teacher positions? A new study suggests yes. We'll talk about it when we come back right after the break. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. 
In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Welcome back to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. So glad that you have decided to spend some time with us. It's no secret that our shared values face many challenges in today's culture. But you can make a difference by partnering with FRC to reach millions of Americans with the hope biblical truth provides to a broken world. And thanks to a $1.5 million challenge grant, challenge match by friends of FRC, your gift will have double the impact if received by December 31st. Will you join the growing momentum of Americans who are confidently and joyfully standing up for truth? As scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. To join this effort, Call 1-800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Again, that number is 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Thank you so much for all that you make possible. Now, are school districts screening teachers based on their political beliefs? According to a recent report in Education Week, the answer is yes. According to the report, school districts across the country are including cultural competency questions in their interview process to examine a teacher's perspective on race and identity politics. For example, the principal of Shaw Elementary School in Boston asks applicants what they've done personally or professionally to be more anti-racist. Montgomery County in Maryland asks applicants questions, including, quote, how do you incorporate gender diversity and the different racial and cultural backgrounds of your students and families into your daily instruction and classroom environment, end quote, as well as this question, quote, how do you ensure that student outcomes are not predictable by race, ethnicity, culture, gender or sexual orientation, end quote. 
Joining me now with her reaction to this and more is Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies here at Family Research Council. Meg, welcome back to the program. It's great to see you, Joseph. Well, tell us your impression. What should we uh, think about these woke screening questions for teacher applicants? Well, that's exactly what they are. They are a screening mechanism. Um, and this is a, a byproduct of the, uh, the, the requirement of diversity statements at the university level. Faculty positions at major universities now, at, really I think all universities, are uh, faculty positions. You not only have to submit a writing sample and show the work that you've published and your, you know, whatever the other requirements are, you have to submit a diversity statement. And um, if you uh, search on the internet for the terms diversity statement faculty, you'll come up with uh, examples of what some diversity statements might look like that you could submit. And they are the typical laundry list of activist terms and critical race theory jargon all put in a word salad that's a diversity statement. It's a way of, of making sure that people are committed to the ideology of the university. And uh, it's very dangerous for um, this to happen at the university level. And it's very dangerous as well at the K-12 level because you're only gonna have one kind of teacher who satisfies the kinds of requirements they're, they're trying to establish with these sorts of tools. Now, Meg, this report detailed uh, questions from different school districts throughout the country with a similar flavor. Is this a coordinated effort? Is there somebody orchestrating this idea that we're going to create hiring policies that make sure that only the wokest among us are hired in public schools? Or is it a coincidence? Are there administrators in these schools who all have come upon this idea at the same time? I don't know which of those scenarios would be better or worse for intellectual freedom in academia, but sadly, I think it's the second. It is the fact that university uh, education programs are teaching, they're fully imbued with critical race theory, dogma, and jargon. And so this is just a natural extension then when you have principals and administrators who are all coming out of the same group think they're going to mandate this at the, um, at the the K-12 level as well when they're in charge of those systems. Um, and let's just be clear about what these statements are. When I go to my, I'm Catholic, and if I want to teach, um, you know, religious education at my Catholic church, um, we're required to sign a statement of faith, a statement that we believe in the teachings of the Catholic church and that we um, try to live out our faith. Um, and that's exactly what these diversity statements are. They are a statement of um, support for diversity, equity, and inclusion, cultural competency. Go down the list of um, critical race theory jargon terms that um, you need to, you know, give, give lip service to and talk about how these things have impacted your life. Um, and how you believe in them and how you will implement them in your work in the classroom. Um, this, this is a really dangerous idea, a really dangerous practice. And if you find out it's happening in your community, you should oppose it. 
And Meg, I think you make an interesting point about this being a statement of faith, because I think that's a, an accurate description of what's happening. And in the last segment, we talked to Paul Schmidt from the Alliance Defending Freedom, who was defending a school in Maryland, which is one of the states in mentioned, uh, at least Montgomery County in Maryland was one of the school districts that was part of this problem. But the state of Maryland had targeted specifically religious schools that had a statement of faith in their documents that they disagreed with. And so now on the flip side of that coin, we see them also saying, not only can you not agree with those biblically based beliefs, you now must in the public school system agree with these left wing progressive beliefs about gender identity and sexuality that's the world that we've come to, isn't it, where the government is specifically punishing one set of beliefs and specifically requiring another set of beliefs if you are going to have the uh, the endorsement of the government. Absolutely. And that's the key difference, right? My Catholic church, it doesn't require you to join uh, as a part of being a United States citizen, right? There's no requirement for, for anybody to join a church or to espouse any particular faith. But when you go to public school, that is required, right? We do have compulsory attendance for education in the United States. And you don't necessarily have to go to public school, but you have to go to school. And so for children whose parents are not able to pick another kind of school system for them, public school students are in this environment. And this these are public dollars, taxpayer dollars are supporting this kind of of hiring program, which will discriminate against people who don't make the right diversity statement. It doesn't, you know, if, if I were to apply for a job in Montgomery County, Maryland, and say that I don't agree with the use of, let's say, personal pronouns for a, a uh, person with um, who has a different gender identity than their actual biological sex, then um, they're not going to want to hire me based on that statement, right? And so this is a way, it's another screening process uh, for viewpoint. It is an attack on viewpoint diversity, as it's called. And um, this is not this is not a good way to do the public's business. It's not a good way to do, uh, to, to operate in the public school setting. Everyone should be welcome in a public school. Last week at the Supreme Court, and again, we also discussed this case in the last segment, but Carson V. Mankin about a, a, a Maine, the state of Maine, a voucher program that the question is, can it be used in schools that provide religious instruction? And the state of Maine was arguing before the Supreme Court that it is their job to provide a religiously neutral, a, a values neutral education to their students and, and sending them to a religious school did not accomplish that, but doesn't don't these situations illustrate that the idea of neutrality doesn't really exist? It's just a different kind of belief system that these that the government schools run in this way would impose. Absolutely. I wish I had thought to to uh, do an Internet search for main a main public school system to see if they have this requirement. It tends to be very easy to find. This is something that's very popular that schools like to advertise about themselves, honestly, whether they're public or private, um, this, this, uh, this sort of um, idealization of diversity, equity, and inclusion um, is, is rampant in, in school systems. And I have a feeling that there are school systems in Maine that are requiring diversity statements. And there's, I would almost 
I would I would bet money on there being universities in Maine that are requiring diversity statements for faculty, right? So the the, the question of how long it takes for that to filter down to the K-12 level may be up for debate. But yes, they the that you will condemn religious instruction on one side and mandate another sort of faith instruction on the other side is really quite quite a, a, a statement on where we are in the culture today. Meg, diversity isn't bad, is it? And that seems to be the, the trigger word that's setting a lot of this off. And, and we on the right are often accused of just kind of being alarmist and freaking out. And, and it's often framed as being a racist position to be opposed to uh, so-called diversity training. What's the problem here? Of course, diver- diversity is not a bad thing. It's the the worship of diversity, so to speak, that is a bad thing. It's the, um, it, in, in establishing a level of diversity, if you make a group of people even less diverse, not necessarily in terms of what they look like or what their background is, but in how they think about the world and in their philosophy of life, um, this is the problem. And the, the, the typical, um, scenario is that someone who is white and is, is looks like the majority of people in in an area that 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 that's not diverse there are lots of different uh, socioeconomic factors in any community that just because a person is let's say african american does not mean that person is poor or doesn't have access to the internet in the home or any of these, any sorts of metrics um, that to, to, to try to judge people based on the way they look as opposed to um, how they think or, or how they feel about things. I mean, this is just an, an affront to the dignity of the human person. And I do think, Meg, that this speaks to identity, which is kind of the, the foundation of this entire conversation. And in reality, what you believe is actually the most important thing about you. And they're trying to insist that the way you look is the most important thing about you. And I would argue that they want diversity in superficial ways, but they want uniformity in the things that matter most. And that's really what they're pushing. But Meg, we only got a couple minutes left, and there's another story I want to get to. Out of Arizona, a school district canceled Transgender Awareness Week. Tell us about what happened there. Um, this is a really great development, and this this shows you the really um, powerful impact that parents can have in the school, when, the school public school system when they're engaged and alert. Um, there was a, a club called the Coexist Club that wanted to have a program on of Transgender Awareness Week, and they had different activities for each day. It was going to be a spirit week. And the first day on Monday, you're going to wear your pronouns, and then on the second day, you would do something else, and then you would, on another day, you would wear a certain color T-shirt that's a, that indicated that you supported transgender students. And this was because the leader of that club, a faculty member, decided that it was important for the entire school to support the students at that school who were identifying as transgender, whatever that means. And um, parents got wind of this program, um, and it ended up being canceled um, they did have the events on the Monday, but the rest of the week, those events were canceled because of parent 
and I think student protest. I mean, the parents were the ones who were getting the credit, but the parents tend to find out about these things from their students <laughs> who maybe don't want to comply, but are, because of the atmosphere of diversity, equity, and inclusion, are not encouraged to share any counter narrative to the one that's offered by the faculty. So this was a great development. Um, and I, I, I think that um, we all love and care for students and any student who's struggling at school, of course, should um, have the support that they need to, to learn in school. Uh, but that doesn't mean that other students um, should be mandated to offer their uh, opinion, whether it's supportive or not supportive about a particular group of people. Megan, about 30 seconds. What can parents who aren't in Arizona learn from these parents and students in Arizona? Well, you learn that it's important to know what's going on at your school. Be sure to monitor your children's social media accounts and the school social media accounts so that when events like this are posted online, you can be ready and alerted to the fact that they're happening and immediately engage to have an impact on them. May Kilgannon, thank you so much, as always, for your time and your uh, vigilance on these education issues, which matter so much to all of us. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joseph. And it is an interesting thread in, at the end of this program when we deal with the state, which are trying to punish one form of education. Uh, but at the same time, we see Transgender Awareness Week. And we see litmus tests being proposed for teachers to teach in government schools. It should make a difference to your family, and you should be paying attention. But remember, fear God and nothing else because he is in control. We will see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.